Welcome to Narrative Responsibility, a podcast about examining the meta story of your life, how well it is serving you, and how to change it for the better. I'm Elena Wolf, relationship coach and life alignment mentor, and this is this week's new perspective. Take me river where I must go Disregarding shadows that me surround Underneath the water so far below Take me where I sink but do not drown Oh river take me down Oh, river, take me down. Hmm, that was hard to stop. That song is also a prayer, so normally I sing it all the way through. But that wasn't the point of singing it today. So you might be wondering what that song has to do with anything personal development, you might be thinking it was kind of weird that I would cold open a podcast that way. And maybe you even thought it was really nice and you want to hear more. Uh, In that case, thank you. It is a song that I use sometimes when I am doing, when I'm facilitating a shamanic circle, and it helps as an on-ramp into the right kind of trance state for active imagination or lucid dream type journeys. So it has a purpose. (laughs) Um, And I don't know, I mean, maybe nobody out there is like looking for the album, but you probably weren't thinking to yourself, wow, how can she hold her head up in public after singing that song in in a public venue or feeling some secondhand embarrassment for me because it was just that terrible. And the reason... I did this as a cold open is so that you could experience my singing for yourself without preconceptions and without me putting any kind of narrative onto you about how you should experience my singing and my voice. Basically, I wanted you to have your own experience of reality, uh, of your own experience of the reality of me before I tell you the story about how I used to think I was tone deaf and terrible at singing. So, Hi there. I'm so glad you're here today. This is episode five, a story about belief, reality, and music. So if you had met me before about August of 2020, I would have told you that I was tone deaf, that I couldn't carry a tune to save my life, and that I was sorry in advance if you ever accidentally overheard me singing. I would have said that to you because I genuinely believed it. And I believed it because of evidence that I had gotten at various points in my life. My story about me being tone deaf and bad at singing would probably have influenced how you heard me sing if you ever caught me. So you probably would have heard more of the flaws and less of the potential because you had the expectation that I was bad. And it would have been a reinforcement of that narrative. Like, oh yeah, she, she wasn't kidding. Like, God, she really, she really can't hear this. Can she, is she listening to the same song we're listening to? I don't, I don't think she is. And that story that I had 
was wrong. Like, completely, (laughs) completely wrong. I had taken a few pieces of evidence and matched them to a potential pattern and then assumed that the match was correct instead of testing that pattern against further uh, reality or looking for other patterns that might also explain what was happening. This leap of assumption is something that we all do. In fact, we often do this, like all of us do this all the time. But just because the data points fit a pattern doesn't mean that that pattern is the truth. So just to illustrate this a little bit more and to give you the fun experience of coming along on this emotional journey with me, I will tell you the story of how I came to believe I was tone deaf and then also how I dismantled that story. The foundation was definitely laid in my childhood home. I mean, isn't it always? Uh, My parents loved listening to music, but neither of them played music. There were no instruments in our house, like not even the requisite piano that I feel like almost everybody else's house had in, in those days. I was a child of the 80s and pretty sure all of my other friends had at least a piano in their house, but we didn't have that. And my parents did not take me to church, so there was no regular access to singing along at church or with the choir or anything like that. I was taught to appreciate music and as an audience member, like music has been just a huge part of my life and still is, but I didn't have any access to the means of making it aside from maybe like trying to sing along with things. But this was also, this was, this was before the days that everybody had a cell phone in their pocket that they could record something on a dime and then listen back immediately. This was before the days of apps that could tell you what note you're singing and help you, you know, see on a graph, do you need to come up or come down to hit the, the, the note center? You know, that was part of it. Just, it wasn't around in my family. So then at elementary school, when we finally got a music teacher, I think I was probably third grade, um, either that was when we got one or when they started sending us to music class, there was an assumption that we walked in with, with a knowledge of the musical alphabet and understanding, you know, what different notes were. And I just didn't have that. So it made me feel stupid. And anything that makes me feel stupid tends to shut me down. <laughs> I think that's a pretty natural response. And I did not learn very much from music class, either because there just wasn't very much there for me to learn, or it was just being approached in a way that I couldn't access or some combination of the two. I also had multiple experiences of not being able to hear that an instrument was out of tune. Say I'm over at a friend's house and we're kind of just like banging around on the piano and the mom's like, oh my gosh, that's so out of tune. I mean. I couldn't tell when we got a little bit older and, you know, peers started picking up guitars, same sort of thing. Someone might be strumming along with it. Oh gosh, this is so out of tune. I could never tell like, okay, well that's, it's making sounds. It's doing what it's supposed to, right? <laughs> um, so then I had a couple friends who were pretty good at music who made comments here and there about me not really singing on key if we were, you know, like in the car, sing along to Backstreet Boys or something like we used to do in those days and definitely do not still do when we hang out anymore. 
you know, that was just sort of like all in the background. It didn't, it didn't really give me uh, a story so much as predisposed me to believe the story when someone else actually gave it to me. And that happened my freshman year of college. I was in a play that required me to sing one line of the script and it was a translation of a Spanish play. I don't know whether the song the playwright used would have been actually a popular like folk song that would have been known or if even he was just making something up and anybody you know putting on this show would have had to create a melody for it. But we chose to create a melody because we didn't have access to the original if there was an original. And so one of the cast members was a music major and she got that task and very proudly brought me the melody that I was to sing. And she sang it for me once and asked if I could sing it back to her. And I could tell from the expression on her face that I hadn't quite landed it. And so she said, why don't I sing that for you one more time? And I said, okay, go for it. And she did, and I tried again, and it did not get better. And she was like, hmm, what, can, can you can you sing this note? And sang a note, and I, I could not sing that note. And she was like, hmm, can you hear the difference between this note and this note? There might have been a slight difference. At the time, I was flustered, I was feeling so stupid and so embarrassed. And also there was not a strong difference between the notes that she sang. And so I very honestly said, I'm not sure. And she just nodded and said, are you tone deaf? You might be tone deaf. And I kind of thought about like my whole history of always feeling really dumb in music and never being able to tell if something was out of tune and having friends tell me that I didn't really like hit the notes right when we were trying to sing. And I'm like, oh yeah, you know what? That tracks. I bet I am. I, I bet I am. And luckily for me, well, at the, at the time it felt lucky. Looking back, maybe it wasn't lucky. Uh, the other girl in the play that had to sing the same song or the same line of the song, it, it was a reprise to my character at the end of the play, uh, also could not sing it. And the director just laughed and said, you know what? They're just not a musical family. Everybody's tone deaf. It's fine. And you know what else? Nobody who came to see my play told me that my singing was terrible because they were focused on, you know, the play itself having actually been pulled off pretty well, or, oh, wow, that was, you did so good or all that. Maybe my performance was just that amazing. I mean, it's possible. Or maybe it wasn't in the scheme of things that big a deal or that bad, but it did give me words to the dynamic that I thought I was seeing. It gave me a name. It gave me a story. And I did not question that story. In fact, I had that story reinforced over the next 10, 15 years by various people in my life. And so I just got really sure that that was the thing, that no matter what I did, I, I just was cognitively congenitally incapable of making music with my voice. Now, did this stop me? Like, no, not in the least. I loved singing. I love singing along to songs when I'm in the car, when I'm, you know, in the kitchen making dinner. You know, it obviously hurt a little bit that I didn't think I could do it well. It made me embarrassed and, you know, not want to do it around any other people. But I thought that my story was accurate. Like, I thought based on my experiences and 
what I could tell about myself and how other people were giving me feedback that it was true. It was a reasonable conclusion to come to based on the evidence that I had, but also it was still wrong. You see, I didn't do any research on what it means to be tone deaf clinically or how that's actually experienced from the inside. It didn't occur to me to do that because, you know, my friend, the music major seemed so confident. Well, okay, I'll take her word for it. She sounds like an expert. I didn't know that ear training was a thing or that you kind of need access to the musical alphabet and instruments in order to learn the uh, the notes themselves or the intervals between them or their relationships to each other. It just, I didn't know what I didn't know. I did not know enough to even think there might be another pattern to explain what I was seeing. So I didn't go seek one out and I just lived with this story and I went on with my life and honestly went on collecting supporting evidence for that story because that's also what our brains do. We have a story they find evidence that reinforces it. They say, see, this story, it's a thing. It's right. We, we've got it right. We're, we're rolling. It's fine. We got the story. We understand. So then back in 2020, I made friends with a professional musician. And I made a joke at some point early in our acquaintance about being tone deaf. And they were like, ah, are, you, are you sure? I don't think you're tone deaf. And I was like, oh, really? That's interesting. Why? Well, because you like music. Most people who are tone deaf don't actually like music because they legitimately can't hear the difference between notes. And so it's rare for someone who's who's tone deaf to like music, especially as much as you like music. And I was like, oh, hmm, okay, well, tell me more. And so they busted out, you know, piano app on their phone and were like, hey, can you hear the difference between these two notes and played two very obviously different notes? And I was like, well, yes, I, <laughs> I can hear that difference. And they said, good, you're not tone deaf. You just never trained your ear. And this was like a mind blow moment for me. I was like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> oh, yeah. You have to train your ear to be able to hear the notes and to understand them and hear the relationships between them and hear the patterns between them. And, you, you know, it's not intuitive for everybody. Perfect pitch is equally as rare as, as being tone deaf. So anybody that you know who is good at music has probably trained themselves in their mind and how they listen to do that. Wait a minute. So like, this is, this is trainable. This is a skill. This is something you can learn. Why didn't anybody tell me this? <laughs> I mean, maybe they tried, but couldn't get past the tone deaf story. I don't know. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I said, well, what do I do? How do I, how do I address this? And my friend suggested finding a vocal teacher if voice was what I wanted to learn, which obviously, yes, it was. And committing to lessons for a year. You know, apparently it takes some people up to eight months to train their ear and committing to a year in advance would be committing to an even longer learning period if I had extra special ear ear training difficulties, but that would be enough to at least be able to make an informed decision about whether I could learn and whether I wanted to keep learning. So I did it and it, it shifted my narrative because the undergoing the process of training my ear and my voice was me testing 
reality with the right tools and the right story and the right approach. And it helped me change that narrative because it gave me real world evidence that contradicted the I'm tone deaf and can't sing narrative. It's not life changing in the sense of, oh gosh, I'm going to suddenly, you know, go pursue a career as a professional singer. But it was life changing in a couple of ways. In the first place, it really did hit home the lesson of how much we can limit ourselves with these stories and beliefs that we have. Even if we think they're good, even if we think they're based on, on something real, they, we can absolutely bind ourselves in and, and I guess in a sense like clip our own wings and not try certain things because we have the story that no matter what, we're going to be bad at it. And it was life-changing for me to confront something that was in- really brought an incredible amount of fear. I mean, again, I had thought I was tone deaf for 15 years with another, you know, however many years before that of thinking I was bad at music <laughs> and singing. Uh, to take that to someone who is a professional at music and open my mouth in front of them, like that was one of the most scary things I've ever had to do. And I did it. I got to experience myself doing that and actually being received with compassion and kindness and support. (laughs) So that was really wonderful too. And then also it does open up uh, a different world of creativity. Even if I'm only ever doing music for myself or in a, I don't want to say like a what would the word be? Would it be paraprofessional, (laughs) semi-professional, professional support role? I don't have to sing to facilitate shamanic trance, but it definitely enhances the experience that I can lead a circle and have songs as part of that. So, you know, it does also open up a new toolbox for me professionally. And it also just brings me a lot of joy. I still love singing. I love singing even more. It makes me happy to know that I don't have to worry about being overheard or that if, if any of my friends want to go do karaoke, that I don't have to die of embarrassment or risk ending up on TikTok as like the worst, you know, the worst <laughs> uh, person ever to, to sing any, any given song. Basically, a whole new world of learning and creative expression opened up to me because I finally tested my belief against the right part of reality. And that's actually the point I want to make by telling this story. Our beliefs are always founded in something. There is a reason for them. Often, it is a very reasonable reason. My belief was quite rational, given my early reactions to music and music training and the use of instruments and the feedback I got. I didn't know enough about how music was acquired to challenge the pattern effectively, and I couldn't propose an alternative pattern. I had maybe 5% of reality available to me to test my hypothesis I'm tone deaf against. My friend, the musician, had something close to 100% of reality, at least in terms of music and how music works. And so they could see pretty much right away that I was leaping to conclusions (laughs) that they would never leap to. We don't know what we don't know. Our stories can be so compelling. 
emotions and fears make stories compelling. Like, I still regularly will record myself singing a popular song just to be sure that what I think I'm hearing myself do is what I'm really doing and that this hasn't all been some like practical joke on the part of the universe. And actually I, I, I really am still tone deaf and I suck at it. Like it, this is three years after discovering I was not tone deaf. And after two years of vocal training, I still do this because that emotional belief was that powerful, that fear and that honestly the pain and the shame wound of it was that powerful for me. But me doing that is also me touching in with reality. It is testing my lingering fear against evidence. And when I do sing in front of other people, if they say nice things to me, I try really hard to actually listen to that feedback, actually absorb it, let myself have an emotion about it, let myself feel their sincerity, because that too is the feedback of reality against my fear. And nothing helps dismantle fear better than kind of counter emotions. I mention the fact that I still struggle with, with fears around this because I want to acknowledge that it's really hard to let evidence undermine our stories. If we have a story, then we feel certainty. We feel like we know something. And if we start getting evidence that contradicts that story, that moves us from certainty to uncertainty, from knowing to not knowing. It's really uncomfortable. I mean, it's uncomfortable because we try to seek certainty. Like our human minds like certainty. They like knowing. We're wired to, to seek for that. But also there's a lot of emotional reasons that it gets uncomfortable. Like we start thinking about maybe the time and the opportunities that we've lost by having this false belief. And that really hurts. It's an ego hit to be wrong. <laughs> we can feel embarrassed about having been wrong. We can feel embarrassed about having leapt to a conclusion or believed something that was later proved false. It can feel like we're losing an identity piece if we change a story. So all of, all of that can make us really reluctant to challenge those narratives. But we ultimately live in reality. Our beliefs can only bend it so far. They can distort our experience of reality and they can keep us from experiencing other parts of reality, but they're not actually changing reality. So I, at least, would rather stop being wrong when I'm given the chance, however much it might suck to realize that I had been wrong. Like, I will take that hit to my ego in order to be right going forward. And reality does give us chances to learn. So what are some things we can do to let reality in a little bit more? Well, part of it is, is keeping a mindset that allows for you to be wrong. Stay open, stay curious. Don't make it mean anything about you that you had it wrong. What I mean is like, don't tell yourself, oh, you're stupid because you got it wrong. Like, no, you got it wrong because you didn't have the right information yet. You hadn't encountered that. It was obscured or you just didn't find it until you did. It doesn't mean anything about you. There's no innate quality. Like, how could you have known? 
you know, we learn by experience. We learn based on what we're exposed to. We create paradigms of understanding the world based on where we start. There's nothing wrong with you if you had a wrong story, right? It just means that you didn't get exposed to the information that would create a different story or allow you to correct that story any sooner. Remember that you don't know what you don't know. That's that we're all in some ways on some subject beginners. And that sometimes even when we think we know something, we are actually only looking at it from one angle. And then when you shift and look at it from another angle, you realize that that thing you thought you were seeing was just an illusion. Oh, and one other thing you can do is keep listening to this podcast and keep getting new perspectives. I literally just made a winky face that you couldn't see because this is audio only. I'm such a dork. If you want to know more about my work, you can check out thepatternbreaker.com. You can follow me on Instagram at thepatternbreaker. And until next time, what are you going to take responsibility for? Mm-hmm.